Hey, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. It's Phil, John, and Logan today, and we're going to be talking about transitioning a workshop for winter as it's starting to get a little cool here and uh, pick up with a couple of updates on what's going on around the magazine world and here at uh, the TV show for the Woodsmith Shop. This episode of the Shop Notes podcast is presented by Epilogue Laser. Quickly and easily customize your woodworking projects for added beauty and value. Learn more at epiloguelaser.com. Couple of we'll do a couple of questions and comments from last week's episode, which was uh, whether or not Logan's getting pigs to go with all of his black walnuts that are falling from the sky. Uh, Christopher Hathaway writes, there's a farm near me in Plant City, Florida that sells macadamia nuts when available. Unshelled, they were much cheaper than shelled, and I sure realized why when I tried shelling them myself. Very difficult. Bill Powell, 1614, says, my recent build was a straight grain ash top with a cherry base. If you look closely at the ash pores, they have a slight cherry coloration that I feel complements the base. And uh, Honestly, I think cherry and ash work very well together. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because they both have a relatively distinct grain pattern to them that are similar, but then you have a different coloration, which I think matches. Yeah. Helps them blend. It's complimentary. Together. Complimentary. Yes. Um, he was saying that the ash has a, uh, the ash pores have a cherry color to them. Yeah. Uh, maybe this is a question for him, but do they actually, does ash uh, actually have cherry colored pores or did all the cherry dust settle in the <laughs> open pores of the ash and discolor it? That's, yeah. that's the question there. That's exactly what I was thinking when I first read it. So there you go. Right. Maybe, maybe. Yep. Uh, Wood Tick Greg says, this is very timely for me as I'm finally starting a build on a good quality hardwood bench. For years, my benches have been nothing but construction grade material, but they taught me a lot about workbenches. Better to make mistakes with construction lumber than hardwood. My new bench will be an ash top and legs because I have it and because it's Phil's favorite wood, LOL. I chainsaw milled the lumber so it was basically free and it's been air dried in my garage for over 10 years and two inches thick. I'm trying not to make the bench furniture grade, but it'll still look nice so that it can be something I'm proud to work on. But it's going to be a bench and will be beat on. One or two end vices and dog holes. Thanks for the discussion, guys. Uh, I would love to see photos of this when you're done with it. So keep us mm-hmm. updated. Uh, DP Meyer says, hey, guys, I got a book recommendation. A Splintered History of Wood by Spike Carlson. The book explores the history of wood's global impact and its personal significance to people in all walks of life. It's a series of stories and essays about different uses of wood. My favorites include how examining wood found at the scene of the crime helped solve the Lindbergh baby kidnapping and how England's colonization of America was for its timber. A really good read. And I had heard of that too. And I think Spike Carlson wrote, uh, for a couple of the other woodworking magazines. I don't remember if it was American Woodworker or Family Handyman, something like that. So that's kind of fun. Um, uh, Chuck Frayne writes, on the subject of the Gramercy Holdfast, because I was having trouble with that, my Gramercy Holdfast on my workbench. He has a set of them and used them with a bench made of two by 12 prime lumber from home Depot. He was having the same issue with the hold fasts that I was describing about not holding well. And then he came across a blurb on their, on the Gramercy or tools for working wood website that says, we have discovered that while the hold fasts work great, they will work even better in more benches. If you sand with 150 or 220 grit around the stems, not up and down, but round and round. So I'm going to have to give that a shot. Try that out on my workbench. Because I'd hate to lose the the benefit of those holdfasts because they're just super sweet. James Scottingham 
I work at a wood veneer mill. When people would graft walnut onto black walnut, they would form burls, and we would get those grafted black walnuts and slice the burls into thin sheets. I haven't seen any in decades. A log buyer said that the walnut they use today doesn't form the pretty burls like they used to. <clears throat> I currently live in Virginia, and we're surrounded by pecan trees and have the same issues with pecans as you do with walnuts. The husks stain the concrete and fingers just like the walnuts do. The squirrels go crazy for pecans, too. They'll sit in the trees. As you walk by, they'll drop the pecans on your head to crack both open. Very nice. I got a uh, twenty-two caliber solution to that problem. <laughs> <laughs> to crack the crack the walnuts and pecans? Uh, yes. the squirrel. Problem. I think you have to like just shoot, to... like lay them out a lot on the sidewalk or driveway. Just, just shoot them. <laughs> yeah, shoot at them. Yeah. Pick up the bits later. Yep. Sounds like Kevin Thomas idea. writes: Ash makes a fine workbench, Logan. But if you have it, hard maple and walnut looks good, too. And then somebody had asked uh, kind of a random key smash name here about using hedge apple or what they call Osage mm. orange, if spelled right. And I think uh, also known as Bodark. Bodark. Yep. Because uh, Brian Van Hooverschwin, one of the muckamucks here at AIM, made a couple of uh, bows, right? And had some mm -hmm. Osage Orange in there. Yep. Osage Orange does not grow very large. Um, it's kind of one of those, like, fence line trees that kind of, like, grow along fence rows and get scraggly. The biggest yeah. you'll ever find is maybe a foot in diameter and maybe six foot long. That's fairly straight. Yeah. I was going to so. say, they always end up looking to me more like shrubs than they do trees. Yeah. Yep. I actually have a, uh, I have a bowl blank of Osage orange over in the other side of the shop. Okay. I was going to yeah. say, I wonder how it's super, turns. super dense. It it turns beautifully with sharp tools or scrapers. Okay. Mm -hmm. What if you, put the actual hedge apple into a pressure pot and resin infused it and then turned it. Logan's saying yes. So uh, <laughs> no, that's not what my face is saying. Seems like um, really damp. Well, yes to, I mean, but it would keep get, spiders away. Yes. Yeah. Spray it all would. over. <laughs> So, like, to to really, like, stabilize something, you have to have it 100% dry. It has to have a zero moisture content. Right. I don't know what happens to a hedge apple if you, like, try to dehydrate it. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I see them all the time deer hunt, like, out deer hunting during shotgun season. You'll see where the, where the, you know, deer and squirrels have been gnawing on them. And I don't know that they actually, like, eat them, eat them, but they definitely chew on them. And they just kind of seem to rot away versus, like, dry out. So like, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not interested, but I'm not disinterested if somebody <laughs> else did it. Not that we're starting a hedge apple turning challenge, but no, <laughs> I think that deer and squirrels, when they just nibble on it, it's more of like a palate cleanser. Mm -hmm. It's like having, having some ginger in between your sushi. You just kind of, yes. Yep. Yep. Make sure you get a good clean taste of whatever you're eating next. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I don't know. That just seems right to me. And it's... Mm. All right. As we're filming this or recording this, the uh, weather has changed in Iowa. The last few days, last weekend was in the 90s, which was ridiculous for being mm -hmm. the transition from September into October. Today is in the 60s. Tomorrow is supposed to be like in the 50s. And before we started the podcast, Logan, you were talking about whether or not to flip on, activate. I don't know what the appropriate Star trek -y kind of term is for <laughs> mm. firing up your radiant heat floor. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess it's just a thermostat, right? Sure. Like, it doesn't actually turn on until the thermostat says, hey, guys, it's too cold in here. And then the boiler's like, oh, I can help mm-hmm. you. And it turns on, and then the pumps turn on, and everything turns on. Right. So I guess, like, it, it never hurts, I guess, to have it on. You know, it just isn't going to be... The only time I guess that it would not make sense to have it on is if like it's cool enough in the morning that the temperature out here drops to the point where it kicks on, but then the temperature during the day warms up enough that it doesn't need to be on. That would be yeah. like that shoulder season would be the only time it would be like, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. But like I have a class out here I'm teaching next week. Um, and I mean, I don't want it cold in here. It's not, I mean, it's, it's a little chilly right now. That's why I put my sweater on, but. You know, that may be because I haven't been up doing much the last few days. I've just kind of been cold the last couple days anyways. So, you know, I'm, I don't know. I might just turn it on. Um, I do have to, like, enclose that radiant floor hub out in the cold side of the shop with, like, a closet to make sure it stays warm during the winter. So maybe this weekend, if I get around to it, I'll close that in get actual electrical because right now i'm running the boiler off of a the boilers the boiler is hardwired the the panel that controls the pumps and the thermostat right now is getting plugged into an extension cord because i don't right. have the i don't have electrical ran right there so maybe i'll run electrical there and do all that jazz so so dumb question is the thermostat based off of room temperature or floor temperature room temperature okay not a dumb question. It's actually a thermostat that it is a radiant floor thermostat. So it has an input as well for a uh, concrete temperature probe. So there's actually a temperature probe that runs right out here about to where the big bandsaw is. And it is monitoring the temperature of the concrete. Um, and I think, I'm sure Nelson will contact, well, he'll let me know if I'm wrong because he likes to do that. But uh I think that the rate that uh, concrete thermostat is or the concrete probe is a safety feature. I think that is just making sure like the concrete itself is not getting like 160 degrees. If that's the water temp you're putting into it. Right. Um, That the floor would actually be lava. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Molten concrete is the worst. Molten. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So. I think that's what that is doing. Um, it's not a standard. Yeah, sense. it's not. It's not like a standard house thermostat, which kind of sucks because I, I shattered it. I don't know how I shattered it. I think I dropped the thermostat face off of the scaffolding. I'm like, oh, you know, whatever. It's a thermostat. They're like, what, twenty bucks at Menards now? They're that one's like a hundred and eighty dollars because it's a it's a radiant floor thermostat. So I had to buy a new one. Perfect. Um, you're like yep. scooping up all the mercury. <laughs> yeah. And all back up. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it will be it will be interesting because I think and I could be wrong. I've been wrong many, many times. But I think part of the reason that radiant heat works or what what allows radiant heat to work so well is that it heats up the floor and then it heats up all the objects in the room. Right. And that kind of helps act like a heat sink to hold the heat because during the winter, granted, I didn't have a whole lot of insulation in here. Um, it never felt like it really got warm with that radiant floor running. Uh, it'll be interesting to see now that I have stuff in here and now that insulations and, you know, we're enclosed and all that jazz, how well the, the radiant heat works. Um, like, am I going to just walk around in my slippers because it, the, the floor is going to be nice and warm? I'm I'm hoping so, but I don't know. I don't know. Shop slippers. Shop slippers. That's right. Really okay. hard to get the dust out of them. Yep. Uh, yeah. That's why you change. You got to have like a little mm-hmm. Mr. Rogers bench right by the door there. So you can That's right. sit down and transition yep. from your shop clothes to. Yep. Yeah. So the question that I had for you is. Is the slab, is there a thermal break between the slab in your shop and then the garage part? No. Okay. There is not. Because um, that's what I, I was wondering, like, if that, yeah, if and how that would affect 
the performance of your radiant floor. I'm sure it affects it in some way. Yeah. And it's just like, I think if you ask anybody that does concrete work or radiant heat work, they'll make an argument for the way that they do everything, right? Whether they do it the same as each other or not. Yeah. And the reason I say that is my concrete guys that I had to do my concrete in here. They laid my foam for me. Okay. Um, they're like, we, you know, we lay foam all day, every day. Like we do, you know, probably 70% of the floors we pour get radiant heat put in them. Okay. Um, they said that they do not do, you know, you do the, the foam underneath, but they said right. that they don't edge the foam, edge the slab in, in, in foam. So like yeah. right now between my wall and my concrete, it's just, that's all it is. There's no foam standing on edge. I was reading that a lot of guys in the HVAC world are like, yeah, like, why wouldn't you? Like you're, you're, you're losing it. You're losing heat out the sides. But my car goes, we've never done that. We've been doing this for 80 years. You know, we do 400 floors a year. We don't do that. That's weird. Um, so I was just like, whatever. I don't, at this point, I don't really care. Um, <laughs> so I think that, yes, there should be a thermal break in between this floor and that floor. However, there is not. So am I getting a little bit of bleed over from the heat here out to there or a little bit of bleed over from the cold in there to here? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Can I measure it? I probably not. Yeah. Like, I, I guess I have my, I have my FLIR thermal camera. So when I flip it on and it gets cold enough, I could actually probably walk out there and see where the concrete hmm. gradually get colder as it gets further away from that wall. Yeah. Or it'd be interesting um, to see in late you know, like in the depths of winter in your shop on mm-hmm. that wall, if you could, do I if feel there's the cold? A, if there's a noticeable difference along, yeah, along there, yeah, I and I don't know, um, yeah, I don't think there will be because my feeders. So I have five loops in here, okay. So they run from me over to that wall, sure, kind of back and forth, right? Um, as you work further towards you know, whatever North wall, I think that this is, um, those loops have to go from the manifold that way and then go back and forth. So actually I have the hottest water on those loops going right along that wall until they start going back and forth. So I don't know, I guess (laughs) that's a long answer of, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I would think just the surface area in general is, such a small ratio on the edges compared to you the know, overall, the oh, overall yeah. that, I don't know. Is it worth it? I don't know. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's the thing. Like if, if you could theoretically measure it and say, okay, I'm going to, if I, if I insulate the, the perimeter and do a thermal break between this slab and that slab, so I'd have essentially two slabs, um, you know, I'm going to save what? $10 a year on heating but I'm going to spend $200 more in foam. So 20 years, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know. There's, there's a give and take there. And I don't know what that is. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a professional. You guys know this. <laughs> yeah. Then the seller's yeah. like, yeah, that's, that just sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. Right. Get well, it. I would yeah. be interested to know, like if there's anybody out there who has actual experience rather than theoretical. Yep. Stuff that they remember from high school physics. Yep. I'm looking at you, Nelson, because I know you've done this. Yeah. Um, like, what yeah. what are the implications on, you know, not having the slab in a bathtub of foam? And yep. is that what, if any, penalty there is between, you know, having a thermal break from an unheated to a heated section on a, you know, because if you think about like a, you know, all the, most of the houses in our area are built that have basements. Yep. But if you're doing like a slab on grade house, yep. you know, and you have an attached garage and you do radiant flooring, essentially that's the same situation as what you have going on right there. So yep, 100%, how yeah. does that get done? 
you know, is there a yeah. thermal break done? Blah, blah, blah. That's, it's just, it was just a question and I, and yeah. I don't know. And um, it would be interesting to see, like you said, because, you know, you didn't really have insulation or finish work done in your shop yeah. last winter. So this winter and cooling season or heating season will be kind of an interesting one. Yeah. test to see what it's like. And I'm, yep. I'm interested. It would be yeah. kind of fun to see I, where it's going. I think it's going to be interesting because I noticed, you know, I got five, 14 foot ceilings in here. The, in the, in the depths of summer, when it was 100 degrees outside, my one mini split that I have set up right now was keeping it at 70 degrees in here. Like, shit, when we were in here uh, filming the other day, Phil, yeah. you're like, it's cold in here. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as you, like, climb the ladder above, like, eight foot, it is significantly warmer. Like, all that hot air goes straight to the ceiling. Yeah. I wonder if I'm going to have that during winter as well. Like, it's going to... You know what I mean? Like if if adding a couple of ceiling fans in here wouldn't help oh. keep some of that hot air down, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, maybe. Um, I so I it was just I don't know. This is all gonna be a learning experience. Um, I will say the one thing I did do uh, is there is moisture barrier under this entire slab, right? And my my concrete guys were not happy about that. But I was like, they're like, yeah, you don't need moisture barrier. We never we think it's a waste of time. I'm like, well, it's because you guys didn't finish fourth grade. Like <laughs> that's where you sorry. learn that. That's where grade. you learn that as fourth grade. At the end of fourth yeah. grade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. Last thing you learn before summer. Uh, yeah. But like I wanted a dry slab. So, because like, I mean, concrete moisture can migrate through concrete, right? So like if, yeah. if the, if the ground's wet, the concrete will wick up moisture. So if I lay a board down on concrete that doesn't have a moisture barrier, there will be water underneath that board. Yeah. I stack lumber over there. Like, I don't want that. So I, I did, um, let me think about this. I think, so the, the pink foam under this side, the insulation, it counts as a moisture barrier. Cause I taped all the seams. Right. Um, but then that side I did like a, I don't remember what it was like eight mil plastic um, underneath the concrete. So, um, so, so technically there is a vapor barrier, so that will help a little bit, but not much. So, yeah, I don't know. But, um, so there's only foam under your side or under the yes. shop side. Okay. Yep. Yep. Because let, <laughs> I think I told you guys this, man, last time I bought that pink foam, like the two inch pink foam, it was like $17 a sheet. Mm -hmm. Right. It's 50 some dollars a sheet now. So, and I had to, I had to buy a hundred sheets for this side. No. Yeah. hundred sheets because they're, yeah, it's like, I, it was like 3,200 square feet. Um, so it was, I mean, it was a lot. So, or maybe I bought 50, I bought 50 sheets cause I bought a pallet, which was 48 sheets plus two. So I bought 50 sheets. Um, I did not insulate that. Uh, nothing over there is insulated. I don't have a weather seal on my doors yet. Like, <laughs> this winter, that is is the mouse the mouse haven. This episode of the Shop Notes podcast is presented by Epilogue Laser. You can quickly and easily customize your woodworking projects for added beauty and value. Learn more at epiloguelaser.com. Well, we're in the midst of redoing some stuff in the video studio set here. We pulled all the stuff off the wall yesterday. Going to do some painting in here for mm -hmm. getting ready for season 18. So that's kind of cool. And probably going to do some rearranging, I think, too, we had talked about. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we bought, we added another wall. Yep. So it's, it's weird because, like, the way we set things up in that studio... It's a functional shop, but it's not how I would set it up if it was my shop. You know right, what I mean? Right. Because we have to get cameras around a certain yeah. way. Same thing with this. Like I have this set up a particular in a particular way because I'm shooting photos. So if I wasn't shooting photos for magazine stuff, I would have this set up a little bit differently mm -hmm. than what I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just I want some backgrounds clean, you know. So. Yeah, it's not really set up for workflow. Is what you mean, like as a normal yeah. shop would be. It's just set up what's convenient for lighting and camera movement. Yep. I think. Yep. And because we really can't 
use one of the walls. Yep. There's the proverbial fourth wall of, you know, theater work that is invisible to the viewer, but, yep. you know, it's not like we're going to put anything along that wall. Because I keep yeah. thinking about it, like, there is a ton of space in this studio when I look around. <laughs> yeah. But you can't, you can only use like you can only 10 use foot half away of, yeah, from each wall. Yeah. Because the cameras yeah. are on the other half. Yeah. Right. Yep. I know. Well, it's like, I was, because right now I have my Vic Mark and then the big bandsaw, and I set up my planer over there. Right. I have a turning class I have to teach in here in a couple of weeks. So I need to bring a bunch of lathes in, which means I also need to get that big Oliver lathe in here. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I know where it's going. I mean, it's going to go kind of, you know, perpendicular to my, my Vic Mark. Um, and I really want to mess with it because it's, it's just a cool machine. But it's going to make that really tight over there. And right. I'm like, I'm probably like that half. I'm not planning on shooting photos on a ton. Usually it's over here, or the t- you know, here are the table saw. Or the the router table or something, or maybe the bandsaw. So I'm not necessarily planning on shooting over there, so I'm not terribly concerned. And as I'm standing there, I'm like, I could work. Like I'm I'm, I'm kind of placing placing tools and stuff. I'm like, I could work in here, no issue. Like this is a standard shop setup. But a standard shop setup is not easy to roll cameras around or roll lights around or do all yeah. that jazz. And it's just, you know, it's just it's just different. I think it would be almost it would be an interesting video to take the studio set and consider the you know don't consider brands or whatever about the different tools but have the three of us or Chris or even Dylan put together like this is how I if this were my space this is how I would set up the the shop. Mhm. You know, we have most of the stuff is on mobile bases or easy enough to move around where it'd be like, you know, shift everything around. This is what I would do. This is what it would look like. Yep. And then have somebody else come in and, and then explain it and then figure out. Cause I think one person's standard shop setup is totally different than another person's. Yeah. So I yep. would be a kind of a curious thing. So, yeah. What, uh, what are your guys' opinions? Because I one of the th- and I I've talked to you guys about. It. I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast. I'm trying to figure out what to do with my dust collection in here. Um, okay. Because right now I have the Oneida Supercell. We shot some video on that. I was working with Oneida to get um, a plan together for hard pipe dust collection in here, and they said, "Well, <laughs> we got some good news and we got some bad news." Bad news is for you. Good news is for us. The bad news is <laughs> the bad news is the supercell is not going to work. The good news for us is here's a here's a uh, estimate for eight thousand dollars for dust collection piping and a new dust collector that will handle the bigger stuff that we have. Yeah. Um. So that's kind of got me thinking about dust collection, and I'm not a hundred percent sure what I'm going to do with it. I don't think I'm going to spend eight thousand dollars on dust collection. Uh. I'm hard to skip the beat when I said that. Uh, but it's got me thinking about like dust collection on tools and at tool sites and stuff. What are your guys' opinions on table saw dust collection? You know, they all have the ports on the bottom, but then almost every one of them comes with some form of dust collection at the blade. Like the, the, saw stop that I have has the one that I think it fits in the riving knife holder and it has the two little paws on it. And then it has like a like shop back hose sized one off the back. Um, we have the floating overarm ones in the shop, right? What's your guys's opinions on those? Like the ones at the, at the blade, like underneath the blade as a shroud over the blade, over the blade. I am not a fan just cause they always seem like they're in the way. Like okay. anything you're trying to do, they're in the way. But like what Phil's mm-hmm. talking about, the ones underneath, they seem to work really well until either A, you don't turn on the dust collector and then yep. th- the cavity fills with dust and chips or the tube 
like will come off or pop off or something. And then, but when they're working, they work great. I, I think for the most part. Yeah. But, yeah. So. I don't have a lot of experience with the overarm one. We've done a couple of plans from shop notes that mm-hmm. had, it was an overarm blade cover yep. and then also incorporated uh, a dust collection feature into that. So I don't, I don't know. And it's one of those things that all of my table saw experience prior to coming here has been without those. Mm-hmm. So to then have one, like John said, it just feels really clumsy and in the way. And it would be interesting to have been or to train myself to use them. Like, this is just how it is. You got to use it. And then, yeah, yeah, you got to use it and then just use it and then find out from there. Because like I said, the ones we did for project plans, they've always been somewhat popular plans. And I feel like they would be pretty practical but again i just don't they feel clumsy to me but i don't don't remember if it was stumpy nubs or if it was steve ramsey is that a woodworking guy yeah he's woodworking for Uh, new mortals yes yes i feel like maybe it was him um that said (laughs) he made a video of like these are the most dangerous table soft safety feature that anybody has ever designed because you can't see the blade. Like with, at least with those removed, you could see the blade and you know where the blade's at, but with right. one of those on, you can't see anything. And I, I guess, I guess that's always been my issue with them. And I, I had a, I had a ceiling mount one. I don't remember if it was like the table saw shark or something like the shark guard or something. It actually it mounted to the ceiling. I had it mounted to the ceiling down to the shop in the basement. And it sat over the blade and stuff thinking, you know, it's going to help me. And I actually sold it. I sold it to a, I think a, a reader or a subscriber or a listener or something. Um, and I hope they, they started using it. Um, it just never seemed like it worked very well, but mm-hmm. I never had the right size dust collector down there, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, that, that would probably be a little bit more convenient if it were coming straight down over the blade. The ones we have, have a swing out arm and it just seems like it's always in the way. And I don't know that I've ever seen anybody actually use it. It's always just swung out of the way. So, and then plus with those guards, you can't do any like really thin or thinner strips because the fence is going to hit it. And obviously if you're doing dados and stuff, it's not doing anything because all all the yeah. dust is directed down or out. It's nothing's coming up. So, well, and that's that's another thing. Like, I feel like, like I feel like if you have a clean zero clearance insert, your shroud underneath is clean and clear to the dust collector, and the dust collector is working as it should. Like, I feel like you're pretty good with dust collection. That yeah. with that setup, I think. The time, like you said, John, when, when I really have ran into issues is like somebody didn't turn the dust collector on. So then I'm in the cabinet for the next 10 minutes, like reaching my arm through the tube, trying to clear a block or yeah. something like that. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's just I. I'm trying to do it right, <laughs> but I don't know what the right is at yeah. the table saw in particular. It's just like the, I mean, it's like the bandsaw. Like the the Laguna has that in the shop. There has the same dust clutch setup that this Powermatic has, where it's the two ports. They don't freaking work real well. Yeah, they do a Although, little bit. But... We did the shop cleanup today, and I opened up the the new Laguna to yep. vacuum that out because I thought there would be a ton of stuff in there, and there actually wasn't. It no, was, no, it was pretty clean. Yeah, yeah, and I think the the biggest thing is that that bottom one. The bottom port, because there's always a port right underneath the, the blade guard or the, the bearings. And then there's yeah. one in the bottom of the bottom wheel. And I think that helps get most of the stuff that packs like inside the wheels. But there's still usually a boatload of crap left on the table. Yeah. You know, when you're done cutting. So. Right. But. And I, I do think that it also makes a difference. I understand that what we do is a little different because we are working in a shared shop. 
if you have only if you have more than one blast gate open, you're killing your dust collection. Right. So a lot of the times, you know, if I'm in the shop, especially if I'm in the shop alone, like after hours or, you know, in the afternoon when nobody's at work anymore, it's like, all right, turn the dust collection on. And then you just walk around hitting every one of the blast gates that's open. And then all of a sudden yeah. it's like, oh, hey, there's the dust collection. <laughs> you there can hear the frequency is. change. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. No, that would be, yeah. Dust collection is a, I think a very easily overlooked item because it, it feels like it doesn't actually do anything until you end up having to empty the dust collector. Cause it's like, Oh yeah, I guess yep. this is actually working. Yeah. But the table saw that I had was a craftsman contractors one with the motor hanging out the back. And over time I, you know, upgraded different features on it and, one of the things that I noticed when I had it apart or was looking at it is that the there was a cast half part of a shroud underneath the blade, mm-hmm. but there wasn't its opposite half. And then there was like a half, because it was cast, half of a dust collection port right back there, which I thought was the funniest thing in the world. Mm. Um, so I ended up making kind of a plywood match to that side and then hooked up like a little 45 PVC fitting on it. And I was surprised on how much that, and I just ran it to my shop vac, but I was surprised on how much that made a big difference on cleaning up dust from that tool. Yeah. So I think the overarm is more, should be considered more of a safety keep your hands away from the blade physical barrier than it is a, a dust collection source of yeah. any value in my opinion. Yeah. Well, and like I'm going to be redesigning my outfeed table. I'm going to do a torsion box style and I'm going to do a couple built-ins on it. It's going to, it's actually going to require me modifying the Craig base that I have. So I'm going to have to chop that guy up, I think. But that Delta Unisaw that I, I bought and flipped when where I bought that jointer from that's behind me, um, it had a, I think it was a rock, I think it was, it was the Delta Rockwell. So I think it was a Rockwell brand outfeed table on it, like a fold-up outfeed table. Okay. But it, it had a couple of cutouts on the outfeed table for the dust collection hose to go through. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of interesting. So I'm like trying to decide if I go dig out my my shroud and maybe I maybe I build it in, especially if I'm teaching classes in here, maybe I build it in just to be able to put it on when I need to put it on, you know, yeah. for people to keep their fingers away. Um, but I don't know. Just one of those things like I understand that it's the shop still. But I really like to keep the dust kind of cool, kind of to a minimum when I right. can. Yeah. So. But if only for the fact of minimizing the amount of sweeping cleanup that you'd have to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, and my 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 floor because it's that textured epoxy. It sweeps up. Okay. But it it takes a little bit of aggressive scrubbing, not scrubbing is not the right word. It takes some brisk sweeping to get it to actually pick up the dust. So I bought I bought a um, uh, dust collector vacuum head from like Rockler, so it oh, hooks okay. up to the four inch dust collector, and you can actually like vacuum your floor, and that it works really well. It's just the flex hose for that. The flex hose for that supercell is so heavy because it has so much static pressure that it has to be pretty rigid to not collapse. It's yeah. like, oh, it's like you're trying to haul around a freaking fire hose as you're trying to <laughs> vacuum. It's just, <laughs> man, it's a struggle. All right, before we wrap up, uh, I wanted to share. I got a new tool, new to me tool, last week from Logan traded to get a double bevel carving gouge. So this was actually started off as a normal 
bench chisel. But I'll put photos on the show notes page. But what I wanted for was to do some of my carving, like for letter work, having a, a double bevel, I don't know what they would call it, a flat gouge, I guess, technically. Right? I don't know. Anyway, the one, the chisel that I got from Logan did not have a handle on it. So I turned a version of my standard, my new standard handle out of beach. This one, I did not include a ferrule on it because this particular chisel had a pretty large flange, I guess, right where the tang meets the blade. And then I put a, a some pretty thick leather in between it, kind of like a shock washer on it, mm -hmm. which is a traditional detail. And honestly, I feel like this is probably one of the best turned handles that I've done in this style. So, and, and beach the, works well on that. Yeah. And this one, yeah, this one is beach. Yeah. For those who are watching on the radio, it's, um, works really well. And I've kind of getting the hang of turning with those little carbide scrapery tools. Mm -hmm. Cause I talked about last week, the, um, rolling pin that I made again with those, with the scrapey carbide tools. So, and then to install the blade, I burned it in. I drilled a couple of pilot holes in there just to get it started. But <laughs> full, full confession is I did something stupid and had the blade facing up. And as I was pushing it in, it slipped. And so I have nine stitches across the middle finger of my left hand that I'm working on. Which actually happened exact almost exactly a week ago mm -hmm. for when we're recording this. So I have been frustratingly unable to do any woodworking since then as my finger heals. And I'm actually in the itchy stage right now. So it just right where the stitches Ooh. are just kind of. My stitches are not at the itchy stage yet. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> So, uh, so I don't so do I what to, I did. I have to ask because I've done several burn-ins on handles like that. Okay, my standard is always to not saying this is right. I'm just saying this is how I've done it, and I've never ended up with stitches. But my standard is to put the chisel in my machinist vise. Okay, so tang up, heat that tang until it's like red hot. Usually, I pre-drill my tang a hole with a step bit. So it actually is, is kind of like tapered. Um, I yeah. have one particular step bit that's really long and narrow and it works really well for, uh, okay. then I get a tang red hot. Um, usually I wrap the blade with like a, um, Oh, what do I have? It's like a piece of fire hose or something. That's that it's, it's like a really thick, like corduroy type material, like a woven material. Yeah. Um, that I wet to keep the heat from migrating down, kind of act like a heat sink. Then yeah. I get the tang red hot and I just go and it just slips right on there, burns itself in. Um, if the, I think I did it on one of the, I think I did it on one of the pair handles that I turned for some carving tools. And I think there was resin in it and it actually boiled and pushed the resin out the sides of the, the wood of the handle but usually it just pushes right on with no issue. Yeah. Like how were you pushing it on that you stabbed yourself? I'm just I'm just trying to visualize how this uh, happened. Right. And it was one of those things like I try pretty hard to do stuff safely. Uh-huh. And sometimes there's just something that you do and in the middle of it it seemed like this is what you just got to do. And then as soon as I cut myself, it was like, nope, I know exactly what I should have done. Because <laughs> okay. what I did is I had the handle facing up and I was holding the chisel in pliers by the blade, ah. heating up the, because I had the torch just sitting there. So I was okay. heating up the tang that way. And ah, then I was pushing okay. the blade down with the pliers and then the pliers slipped and my middle finger went straight down onto the blade. Ah, Okay. Okay. So. Got it. 
I was I was trying to in my head visualize how how the whole thing happened. Yeah, yeah. When, no, and when, then, you, when you sent a picture of your hand in the doctor's <laughs> lap. <laughs> so then I, the next day I was feeling embarrassed and mad at myself for having done it the wrong way. So I came in and then I did like what you said. I put the yeah. chisel tip down on a piece of scrap plywood held it yeah. with a hand screw. Okay. And then heated up the tang. Okay. Till it was I think I didn't heat up the tang hot enough either. And then Got I it. was just able to push the handle on. I actually tapped it on with a mallet. And then at the on the heel end or the butt end of the handle, you can yeah. still kind of see it is yep. like a little like water boiled out of there. Yeah. It was I say, real... I I've I've definitely had that happen. Yeah. So anyway, it was, I have it and it's fixed and I have proven to be the master of this chisel, but it did bite me first. So you got it sharp though. I did get it sharp. It is very, because uh, I don't know where you picked it up. You, you maybe remember or don't. Anyway, somebody had ground it. It's half inch wide, but somebody yep. had ground it almost like a screwdriver shape so that it tapered yeah. way in was much yeah. narrower so i had to grind all that back and then put the double bevel on because like i said it was a bench chisel so it only had a single um but no the sharpening part and the grinding went really fast well, and and we had to, we had to retemper it or we had to reharden it because it was yeah, soft because it was kind of soft yeah so yeah because whoever had ground it into that other shape you could see that the that edge that they was all blue yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, I'm excited about this coming Monday when the stitches come off and I can begin to do normal functions. Mm -hmm. And being left-handed, having your left hand mostly out of commission is frustrating. Yeah. Like, got mm -hmm. it, learned my lesson, figured it out. Yeah. So... Yeah, the uh, the next next pro. Well, I had to decide like, do I work on my windows or do I just get my actual job done and do some magazine projects? <laughs> I'm really sick of looking at these windows just wrapped with Tyvek and stuff. So I kind of <laughs> just want to just kind of want to do the dang windows. Although I realize these are 60 inch windows. Okay. So I must have ran Liberty Hardwood out of 10 foot alder. Because everything I was getting, and I got a lot of it, like I mean, everything, everything's alder, right? So I got a lot of it, and it was all ten foot until this last order, and then it was all eight foot. These are sixty inch windows. Yeah, I need. I could get two window trim pieces out of a ten foot piece, but out of an eight foot piece, I'm mm -hmm. only getting one, which kind of yeah. sucks. Like this is this is less than ideal. Yeah. So, what project are you going to build out of two and three foot pieces of? <laughs> I, don't <alder? laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Well, see, I have to. I have to. My next project for the magazine is going to be an, a, a sawtill. Um, I have a sawtill downstairs that was actually one of the old woodsmith ones. You remember yep. the Virgoin furl one? Yep. Um, it it's a beautiful looking sawtill. It doesn't fit. It was made to fit particular saws and my saws don't fit. Um, mm. Like it was, it had handle cutouts for a couple of like, you know, dovetail style saws and my saw handles don't fit on those. Um, my panel saws are too long to fit where the panel saws go on that one. So it's kind of a, it doesn't work real well. So I'm going to build another saw till one that will kind of fit all my saws. So that one's going to start first, but then my next project's going to be the workbench. Um, and I was talking to you guys about this a little bit while we were, while we were in last week. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of Stephen Bunn who had sold a workbench project to Popular Woodworking probably 10 years ago. And it was never published. So he, he got a hold of me. He's like, hey, you still own this thing. Like, you can still publish it if you want. I got paid for it, so I'm not in a hurry, but he's like, you know, I just, I would love to see it published. And Steven was a cabinet maker or he was a woodworker at Thomas Mosier furniture. 
And uh, Thomas Mosier asked Stephen when Taunton Press released their Workbenches book back in the early 2000s, I think, there was a big Shaker Workbench on the front of that book. And Thomas Mosier told Stephen, hey, I want you to design a workbench like this, but smaller. I will provide the material for two of them, and you keep one, and I'll keep one. So that's what Stephen did. And that was the workbench that uh, Stephen sold to Pop Wood was that design. So I, I emailed Stephen the other day, and I was like, hey, Stephen, I still have this email from you from a year ago. I have the CD. There's all the files on it. I was like, you know, I here's what I would like to do. I would like to publish this in the next couple issues with your photos, but I would also like to be building one at the same time for my shop here. Are you cool with me like showing your photo and how you did it and then my photo and how I did it and just kind of it's a parallel story where it shows, you know, here's the original, here's the one I'm building that is a little different um, and here's why. He's like, yeah, go for it. So he he actually yesterday sent me all of his um, he he said, I went to my local library to scan these because they're hand drawings <laughs> of the bench. So he went to the library and scanned all of these drawings that he had and sent them to me, which is kind of cool. So it's all his handwritten notes on when he was building this bench. So that will be the next one. That's a long winded answer of it's going to be a cherry base, but it requires a lot of two and two and three foot stuff. So maybe some parts of it will be alder. There you go. So, a few drawers out of Alder or something. I don't know. Yeah, something, oh. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, yep. All right, there you go. That wraps up another issue, ep- issue episode of the Shop Notes podcast. Got an issue of Shop Notes coming out later, a couple of months from cool. now. So uh, thanks for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or smart remarks, you could put those in the comment section on our YouTube channel or send us an email, woodsmith at woodsmith.com. Thank you to Epilogue Laser for sponsoring this episode. Uh, check out their stuff on ways you can uh, create unique and one-of-a-kind one of woodworking projects and personalize them. Uh, you can take a look at epiloguelaser.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.